of God's Word. Exodus 1, 15 through 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Well, as we were singing, I just felt like the Lord was putting on my heart this theme of the family of God. That's not just like a sentimental thing, like we feel like family around here. That's a truth revealed in God's word. In Jesus, we are family, whether we feel like it or not. Galatians chapter 3 talks about the fact that everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ is now gathered into the one covenant family of God. And in verse 28 says, Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Which means ethnicity can't separate us in the body of Christ. Gender can't separate us in the body of Christ. Economics can't separate us in the body of Christ. Everybody say, we are family in Jesus. Now, you said it to me, to yourself, to God, but I also want you to tell your neighbor, because here's the thing. This is a biblical reality that we are family, but sometimes we don't act like it. Or maybe another way to say it would be, sometimes we do act like dysfunctional worldly families instead of acting like the Jesus family. So what I want you to do is to turn around to somebody next to you, preferably somebody that you haven't already said hi to this morning, and tell them, say, in Christ we are family. That's true up here in the front, the side, the middle, the back, the balcony, which is where I like to call the bleachers back there. Y'all my family in the balcony. Uh, we're all family in Jesus. And the, the Bible calls us to love one another as family. Romans 15, 7 says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, when Christ welcomed us, did he welcome us because we deserved it? He welcomed us completely. He embraced us fully, not on the basis of what we deserve, but on the basis of his love. So I want to encourage you today, right now, as we hear the word of God, you're not an isolated individual sitting here. We're hearing God's word as family. And then in a little while, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're being drawn to Jesus, which means we're also being drawn to a common table of fellowship. And then we're singing together to God, not as isolated individual worshipers having a spiritual experience, but as the family of God. And then when you hang out for first Sunday lunch, which I help you, hope you do, it's Super Bowl favorites theme day. So we're going to redeem some Doritos, I assume, later. Um, when we fellowship, I encourage you, don't just sit with the people that you would normally sit with. Don't just build a relationship with people like you. Find some, We are still a smallish, medium-small church, but it's gotten big enough that there's probably people in here that you've never had a conversation or you've only had one or two with. And so I want to encourage you, go meet somebody you don't know. Sit down, break bread with them. Doritos, whatever you're breaking, break it with them. And bi- let's build relationship as family, all right? That's not even my sermon topic. I just felt compelled to share it. And then Chauncey stood up and talked about it, so I thought we should go with that for a second. Our attention today is given to Exodus chapter 1. And before I dive into this text, I do want to ask you to bow your head with me once again to pray. The scripture says that God is looking for people who tremble at his word to bless them. So I just want to give you a moment to quiet your heart and recognize what we're reading is not mere words of man, but the very word of God. And I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time in the scriptures together.
Our Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you for being the God who sent Jesus to rescue us. And we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to teach us and comfort us. And I thank you for bringing us to this place this morning. That wasn't an accident. We praise you for all your goodness and love. We thank you for the gift of Scripture. And please give each of us soft, tender, sensitive hearts to the Bible and to, to your spirit and to one another today. That we could be called to repentance that we could be encouraged, that if there's wounds in our hearts, that your spirit would bring healing this morning, that we could be stirred up to love and good works, that we would see Jesus Christ more clearly, treasure him more, love him more, trust him more, and that there would be a holy fear of God that would be stirred in our hearts this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week as we began our study of the book of Exodus, one of the themes we noted from the first 14 verses of Exodus, is that Pharaoh and the Egyptians were afraid. They were afraid of the Hebrews. And that fear motivated them to oppress the Hebrews. Because they were afraid, they became cruel. I want to read you a couple verses from last week. They're not in your bulletin today, but if you got your Bible, this is... Verses 12 through 14 of Exodus 1. We read these last week. I just want them to be fresh on your mind right now. But the more they were oppressed, that is, the more that Pharaoh and the Egyptians oppressed the Hebrew people as their slaves, the more they, the Hebrews, multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So we talked about last week, God's blessing and God's grace are stronger than Pharaoh's oppressive power. And they're stronger than his fear. But the more that Pharaoh tried to oppress the Hebrew people and God blessed the Hebrew people, the more Pharaoh grew afraid. He did not repent. He did not yield to God. He did not start to honor the dignity of God's people. Instead, he panicked. And the verse continues, Hebrew, excuse me, Exodus 1, 12, second half of the verse. And the Egyptians were in dread. Everybody say dread. That means they were really, really afraid of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Fear led to ruthlessness. Cowardice produces cruelty. And it made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick. We didn't talk a lot about the details of that last week, but you can just imagine all day, every day, in the mud, caked with mud while the sun is pounding on you, gathering up straw, hands getting blistered, mixing the straw with the mud, setting it to dry, carrying it to hot, hot fires to be cooked. It was physically brutal work. And in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I mentioned that to you Now, because I want it to be fresh in your mind that when Pharaoh and the Egyptians feared the Hebrews, their fear of men led to cruelty and injustice. And as we mentioned last week, this isn't just any old kind of fear. To be more specific, this is xenophobia. Fear of the immigrant, fear of the ethnic outsider, fear of the ethnic minority, fear of the refugee. It's a fear that's rampant in the world today as we have a global migration crisis And people who are desperate for a better life, much like the Hebrews in Genesis, are trying to find a place where they can find food and work and survival for their families. And other people feel threatened by this. And this fear of the immigrant leads people to act ruthlessly. That's a familiar scene in the Bible, in human history, and all over the world today. But in our text today, we see a totally different kind of fear. It's not fear of man, it's fear of God. And fear of God has the paradoxical effect of making people not fear anything else. Fear of God makes people courageous. And fear of God provokes people not to be cruel, but to honor the dignity of human life. Fear of God moves people to justice. It moves people to love. It moves people to compassion. 
We read about this because in verse 15, the king of Egypt, who's growing more and more desperate because his plan isn't working, goes to the Hebrew midwives. Now, you know what a midwife is. It's like somebody that helps mamas give birth to their babies. And actually, these midwives would have been advisors to the Hebrew women all the way from the process of uh, conception through pregnancy, through childbirth, and then rearing the child in their young years. So these were nurses slash mentors, wise older women that would be helping the Hebrew young women in many ways. And the Pharaoh goes to them, one of whom was named Shifra and the other one Pua. These were probably two leaders. There's probably a bunch of unnamed midwives that we don't know about, but these two are mentioned as leaders. And the Pharaoh says to them, verse 16, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Pharaoh's plan is wipe out the males. This is infanticide, baby killing mixed with uh, genocide, trying to decimate an ethnic group. Both genocide and infanticide are terrible realities all over the world today. And the cruelty of Pharaoh is getting worse and worse. But then verse 17 is the verse that I mostly want to talk about today. I love this verse. This verse, something about this verse grabbed my heart about three years ago. And this verse has moved me to tears a bunch of times. I don't quite understand why. I'm going to do my best to talk to you about this verse. I just pray the Holy Spirit will help us today. And this verse is on the table. You know, we started doing our scripture memory as a church a while back. And this one has been added to our scripture memory list. I want to encourage you to hide this verse in your heart. Verse 17 says, but the midwives feared God. That's the title of my sermon. Everybody say the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. Their fear of God made them not fear Pharaoh. Perhaps more accurately, I don't know for sure, but I would guess their fear of God made them courageously resist Pharaoh to defend vulnerable human life, even though they probably were scared. They probably trembled a little bit, but they knew that they didn't ultimately have to cower before Pharaoh, even if their emotions might have been a little vulnerable or a little tumultuous because they knew somebody bigger than Pharaoh. They knew the living God. So Pharaoh says, when you go help the Hebrew ladies give birth, if it's a girl, let it live. They can continue to be servants. But if it's a boy, kill it. Boys can grow up to be soldiers. Boys can grow up to lead revolutions. That's how Pharaoh thinks. And they refuse. They protect the lives. In verse 18, Pharaoh calls them to give an account. Verse 19, the midwives say, well, look, every time we go to deliver one of these babies, the Hebrew lady already gave, a, gave birth to a child before we got there because they're strong. I don't know if they were lying or if this was true. Maybe they delayed a little bit before they showed up so that the Hebrew women would give birth without them. At any rate... In a situation in which their lives were at risk, they're trying desperately to protect vulnerable human lives. And then in verse 20 we read, so God dealt well with the midwives. God was pleased with them. And and it says, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. God's continuing to keep his promises to bless the Israelites. And verse 21 says, because the midwives feared God, you might underline those two words again. The midwives feared God appears in verse 17. Now again, actually underline all four of them. Verse 21, the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The, the, the passage ends on a very ominous note that now he, Pharaoh is enlisting all the Egyptians in his plot for genocide. And we're going to read next week about how even in the midst of this incredible evil, this tyranny, this oppression... God is not thwarted, but God's going to protect 
and raise up a deliverer named Moses. And as a matter of fact, as God so often does, he's going to take the evil intentions of evil people and use them to bring the evil regime down. Because due to Pharaoh's schemes, Moses' God-fearing, God-trusting mama is going to put him in a basket, and Moses is going to grow up in the court of Pharaoh where he learns how to speak the language of that court in preparation for becoming God's instrument to bring Pharaoh down. But today, we're talking about the midwives. A generation or two is still going to suffer before Moses leads the people out of Egypt. There's still a long road ahead. God's grace is going to erupt with deliverance and liberation soon, but soon doesn't always come as fast as we want it to, does it? So now there's this in-between time and the people of Israel are left with the question, how do we live? How do we live with courage? How do we live with dignity? How do we live with justice in the midst of this tyranny? But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. I think part of the reason that that verse keeps moving me to tears over the years is because I feel like I recognize these midwives. I feel like I've known them. I know I recognize them in many of you who with quiet dignity live lives that honor God. Men and women in this room. And with quiet dignity, you live lives that honor God. And in the face of of an often cruel world in the face of a culture of death, you are quietly tending the young, taking care of babies, teaching the little ones, mentoring kids and youth, sharing the gospel, cultivating life in the midst of death. I especially think of some of our ladies. Anybody in here want to testify that some God-fearing mom or grandma or auntie gets a lot of credit for you being who you are today? Raise your hand if that's true for you. Okay, there's a lot of hands going up all around the room. And if I can be real, I think, I mean, I I picture a lot of you guys, men and women, I picture my wife. That's part of what makes me cry. I think of my wife, Candace, just the way that she's constantly with dignity, serving and cultivating life. But I think part of the reason I cry is because every time I read this verse, I'm just going to be real with you. I start having flashes of faces coming in front of me who are grandmothers, mothers, aunties who are women of color that I've known over the last several decades of my life, who, with very little respect from the culture, never given the credit that they are due, have stood in the face of great difficulty, honoring God and cultivating vulnerable life. And I just think those women are worthy of so much respect, and I want to imitate their faith. Thank you for women of color in this room who have done that. Thank God for them all over our city and all over our country. The midwives feared God. In the face of great difficulty, they courageously resisted Pharaoh and let the male children live. For the rest of my sermon, I just want to think about A few questions related to this text and how it might be relevant to us today in the 21st century. How can we imitate the faith of these saints? The questions that come to my mind and that have probably come to your mind are this. What is the fear of God? What does that mean? What does it mean to fear God? A question you may have thought about would be this question. Should Christians who believe the gospel fear God? Doesn't the Bible say somewhere something about perfect love drives out fear? It does. First John 4. We're going to get there in a minute. The answer to that question, by the way, is yes, Christians should fear God. But there's a certain kind of holy fear that the gospel deepens in us while it drives out another kind of fear. We're going to talk about that in a moment. What effects will the fear of God produce in the life of Christian discipleship. In other words, if you and I begin to fear God in the way we're supposed to, like these midwives did, how will that affect our lives? These are some of the questions I want to think about for our remaining time together. First, let me start not so much giving you a definition as pointing you towards a definition. What are we talking about when we talk about the fear of God? I want to develop my answer to this as I look 
at several scriptures, but just initially, let me say this. The fear of the Lord is the proper human response to the knowledge of God's holiness, justice, mercy, and power. The fear of the Lord is the proper human response. It involves certainly our emotions, but it involves our will. It involves everything about our humanness. And it's a response to the knowledge of who God is. I I mention His holiness, justice, mercy, and power because those attributes of God are often associated with the fear of the Lord in Scripture. But really, it's just the proper response for who God is, everything that God has revealed Himself to be. The fear of God is a reverent, trembling faith that God is who He says He is. The God of the Bible really is the God of the Bible, and He's real today. He exists, and He's holy, and He's just, and He's powerful, and He's involved in our lives. Now this week, as I've been trying to think more deeply about the fear of the Lord, and looked at tons and tons of Bible verses about this, and looked up a bunch of biblical commentary, and looked at what a bunch of theologians over the centuries have said about the fear of God, one of the patterns that stood out to me is over and over, wise Christian teachers have distinguished between two kinds of fear to help us. I want to talk about this together for a moment. The first one, I'm going to give you the the fancy words that theologians use, and I'll explain what they mean. First one is what's called servile fear. Servile fear. This is basically the fear of punishment. So everybody say "Servile servile fear. The next one is what theologians call filial fear. That means the fear that a child might have of a parent whom they love and respect. So everybody say filial fear. Servile fear. At its worst is the fear that Hebrews might have had of Pharaoh. If I'm bad, Pharaoh will punish me. There's no love in that. I'm just about self-preservation and that guy has power over me, so I'm going to fear him. There's a little bit better kind of servile fear, which might be something like this. I'm late for my appointment. I would like to speed. My respect for human dignity at the moment is not feeling strong enough to prevent me from speeding, to keep me from putting other human lives at risk. But the police car I could see in my rearview mirror somehow has this effect. Because I know if I go over... The limit, too much, he's going to turn those lights on. You know what I'm talking about? So this is still servile fear, but it's a little bit better kind of fear. It's recognizing if I do wrong, if I transgress the law, there will be consequences. And that restrains me from doing evil. That kind of servile fear sometimes has a helpful function, especially early on in our spiritual life. Anybody ever almost do something really stupid and self-destructive and then all of a sudden the thought came to you, God's going to punish me if I did this and you didn't do it? Anybody get driven to church because you thought, I don't want to go to hell? Now that motivation won't take you very far, but it's not a bad start. It's helpful. But filial fear is something different. This is the fear that we mentioned that a child might have. It's a respect. It's connected with love that a child might have before a loving parent. A child may know that a loving parent will discipline him or her when he or she misbehaves. But more than that, a child loves and respects the parent and doesn't want to displease the parent. So if there's a great relationship between, say, a father and a son, or a mother and a daughter, or a father and daughter, mother and son, whatever, a great re- relationship between a child and a parent, the child might be about to do something and he thinks, you know, I love mom and this is going to make her sad. I love dad and I don't want him to be disappointed. I want to have a close relationship. And that's a, a different kind of fear. And that's the kind of fear that Christians will actually grow in us the more we understand the gospel. I'll point you to some scriptures to help unpack this for you. But 
the further we go in the Christian life, there's still a sense in which I don't want the consequences of being disciplined by God might be a helpful motivation to keep us from doing something foolish and to lead us back to God. But more and more, what begins to develop is I love God so much that I want intimacy with him and I want to please him. And I fear doing anything that would keep me from being able to please my father and enjoy him in as deep of a way as possible. A few initial thoughts. Now let's think a little bit more about this in relation to some particular passages of Scripture. First of all, let's talk about this just as we see the theme of the fear of God in the book of Exodus. So everybody say the fear of God. What we'll see as we read through the book of Exodus is that even the Egyptians slowly learn to fear God as they witness his judgment. Now this is not that child fear, it's the fear of punishment. Let's look, for example, by the way, I'm about to go through a lot of scriptures really fast. So you could try and flip in your Bible if you want to, but I would recommend either just listening or probably better jot down the references so you can look these up later and study them. There will also be a podcast if you want to listen to this again with the benefit of a pause button. I'm going to go quick. Exodus 9 verses 20 through 21 say this. After God has been sending a lot of plagues on the Egyptians, and they're starting to recognize the God of Israel doesn't mess around. Every time we defy him and disobey him, something terrible happens. And now God has threatened a new plague on their livestock. Exodus 9, 20 through 21 says, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried their slave, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So you see here, even the Egyptians... They're starting to recognize that God is holy and God is just. When they disobey God, God punishes them. And that's having the positive effect on them of making them think twice about oppressing other people. And think twice about disobeying or disregarding the word of the Lord. That's servile fear. As we keep reading throughout the text, we realize that the Israelites... Learn to fear God as they witness not only his acts of judgment, but also his acts of gracious salvation. The mercy of God also leads us to the proper fear of him, that filial fear. Exodus 14 tells of the people of Israel. You remember, this is the favorite part of the book of Exodus. The Red Sea is on one side. The Egyptians are on the other side. The people of Israel are freaking out. Then Exodus 14, 14, Moses says that you don't need to be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And then God stops. He puts the cloud of his presence to block the Egyptians from chasing down the Hebrews. And Moses lifts up his staff and hits the water. And what happens to the Red Sea? The Red Sea is parted. That's right. Three people simultaneously say, which means the Red Sea was parted. And the people of Israel walked right through on dry land. God made a way where there was no way for them to be led out of slavery into freedom. And then the Egyptians come running after them and they get afraid again. But if you fear the Lord, you don't need to fear anybody else. And so when the Egyptians got into the water, the Lord God sent down the Red Sea crashing on them. And they were judged for their evil, which means that the Israelites were saved by the grace of God. And after they saw this, Exodus 14, 31 says this. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, this is surely in part what you might call servile fear. They saw the Egyptians get punished and they thought, we don't want this to happen to us. But this is also the beginning of something deeper and beautiful, filial fear. They're coming to know God as a gracious father. We know that because it says here that they began to believe in him, to trust him. And then as you get into uh, Exodus 15, the very next thing they started doing was celebrating. They started singing to God. And Miriam, the sister of Moses, pulls out tambourines. and Everybody starts dancing and celebrating. This is a fear that looks like love and joy and celebration. They're saying, we've come to know a great deliverer and we want to enjoy him and be as close to him as possible 
As we keep reading, we learn that slowly but surely this fear of God is coming to take root in the hearts of the people of Israel in a way that is helping them to learn how to live with integrity and righteousness and justice. For example, Exodus 18:21 says this, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So these are people who have learned to respect and to revere God. They don't want anything to interrupt their fellowship with God. And that has produced in them a lifestyle of integrity and justice. We could keep going throughout the Bible. In the Mosaic Law... Fear of the Lord is associated with a respect for human dignity. Now, those are two really important words. Everybody say human dignity. The Bible teaches that every human being is made in the image of God, which means if you respect God, you respect every person. Do you respect them still if they're a different color than you, friends? That was an inadequate response. Do we respect people even if they're a different color than us? Different language, different nation. Now, this might be blasphemy in our particular cultural climate, but even if they're in a different political party than you, are you supposed to respect them and love them and treat them with compassion? They're made in the image of God. If you respect God, you'll respect every human being. That's why Desmond Tutu, the great Christian leader, who was God's, one of God's main instruments to end the racial segregation and apartheid of South Africa, said... Injustice and racism are blasphemy because it dishonors the image of God and his people. As we read through the Mosaic law, people who fear God respect human dignity, especially among the vulnerable. There's a lot of verses about this in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 25. I'm going to real quick just read you some. You might study those chapters later. Leviticus 19:14 says, you shall not curse the deaf. Or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. If you fear God, you will treat disabled people with compassion. You will respect them as God's image bearers. Receive them as a gift to you and go out of your way to bless them. Leviticus 19.32 You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. If you fear God, you will respect your elders. We have a youth culture that worships youth and often dismisses or disrespects older people. But the Bible says if you fear God, you will not be conformed to that cultural norm. You'll show respect to older people just like God cares about them. Leviticus 25:17 says, you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. That's just a general statement. If you fear God, you're not going to wrong other people. Because you're going to respect their human dignity. Leviticus 25, verses 35 through 36. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. And he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. If you fear God, you will have compassion and generosity towards poor people. The text says Leviticus 25:43. you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. The context is saying Israelites don't enslave your fellow Israelites. And here it uses this word ruthlessly. That was the word that described Pharaoh's action. And it says, I didn't save you so you can act like the people that used to oppress you. If you fear God, you will have compassion and respect and love for every human being made in the image of God. Moreover, the book of Deuteronomy teaches that fear of the Lord is connected with love for God. Those two don't rule each other out. And it's connected with a lifestyle of walking in God's ways. Let me read you one verse. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? Everybody say, fear the Lord. Lord. Now listen to what it goes on to say. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways. Everybody say, walk in his ways. Then it goes on to say, to love him. Everybody say, "Love love him. They go together. 
Fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This is filial fear. It's saying, God, you're my father and you're holy and you're good and I love you. And I don't want anything to interfere with my relationship with you. And though I do have a healthy fear of punishment, more than that, my motivation is that I want to be as close to you as possible. I want to please you. I want to enjoy intimate relationship with you. So I want to be careful not to do anything that would grieve your heart or that would interrupt our fellowship. When my kids disobey me, I'm not a perfect dad by any stretch of the imagination, but they know that I love them. If they've got any healthy fear of daddy, it's not because they fear I'm going to disown them or I'm going to cast them out. But they just don't want to disappoint me. They just don't want to make me sad. At their best moments. We do have some other moments, but we're not here to talk about my family life right now. (laughs) The wisdom literature of Scripture teaches that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Listen, if you didn't write that down, write it down. Proverbs 9.10. And ponder this, because in this verse, the fear of the Lord is parallel with knowledge of the Holy One. What we're saying is fear of the Lord is the trembling faith, the reverent awe, the serious, respectful love that comes when we know God and when we know that he is holy. That's the fear of the Lord. What effect does it have on us? Well, the wisdom literature says in Proverbs 8:13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. If I know the Holy One and I love him and I trust him and I revere him, I don't want to have anything to do with evil. That's the effect it has on me. Now, as we're moving towards a close here, I know that there's some of you who might be thinking, Pastor, this sounds good, but that's all the Old Testament. Some of you had that thought already, right? And it's good that you're thinking that way. Didn't Jesus die on the cross for our sins? Yes, he did. Didn't he rise again from the grave so that everybody who trusts in him can be forgiven and experience the full assurance of salvation? Yes, he did. If you trust in Jesus, friends, you can know that you're a child of God. Does that get rid of the fear of the Lord? No, it doesn't. And then you say, well, then how are we supposed to understand that verse somewhere about there's no fear in love? Well, let's look at it together. The fear of the Lord is a New Testament thing. It's a Christian thing, not just an Old Testament thing. Disciples of Jesus here today, we need to imitate the faith of these midwives who feared God. That's what I'm trying to say. As a matter of fact, we've got a lot more reason than they do to fear God. First John 4:18 says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love so it's clear from this text there is a certain kind of fear that love casts out and when we are made perfect in love then this fear won't have any place in our lives and the case that i'm trying to make for you right now is that that is what we've been calling servile fear it's fear of punishment Early on in your spiritual journey, the the knowledge that you're a sinner and the knowledge that you deserve judgment might awaken in you a holy fear. I don't want to go to hell. And that's actually a really good thing for you if it leads you to the cross. As you trust in Jesus Christ, you can experience the assurance of salvation so that God doesn't want you to be tormented by fear of going to hell. You do still have a knowledge, though, that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And there's a healthy sense of, I don't want to experience that discipline. But as the Christian life progresses, more and more, we're being perfected by the love of God. And this knowledge of God's love for us produces in us a love for Him to where we're thinking less and less about the discipline of God and thinking more and more about, God, how do I please you? How do I be as close as possible to you? The the question starts shifting. Here's the mark of an immature Christian. We ask, what can I get away with? Is it okay with if? If you're asking a lot of questions like that, that means you're really being motivated by servile fear. Is it okay if I do X? 
can I get away with doing X? As you grow in the Christian life, what happens is the love of God starts having an effect on you where it becomes positive questions. Will it honor Jesus if? Will I experience more intimacy with Christ if? Will other people see the goodness of Jesus in my life more if? You see the difference? That's what 1 John 4 is telling us about. When we're in heaven, no more fear of punishment at all, forever. No more fear of discipline either. But the holy fear of God, filial fear, will continue in the form of reverent awe before our Lord forever and ever. Now let me just show you. This isn't just John Mark talking. The New Testament emphasizes this over and over. I'm going to go rapid fire through these since we're almost out of time. Second Corinthians seven one says, "Since we have these promises, incredible promises of hope in Christ." Paul goes on to say, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Christians, Paul says, hold on to the promises of God. Hold on to the hope of heaven, the hope of a new creation, and then bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. What this is saying is press on to maturity. Listen, friends, I need you to hear this carefully. The Christian life is not just about going to heaven and making sure other people go to heaven. We want to grow in spiritual maturity to become mature children of God. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, press on to maturity. And what this text says is that growth in maturity is something that is brought to completion in the fear of God. If we don't have this holy reverence... For God, it won't happen. Hebrews 11, 28 through 29 says, Therefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be, excuse me, having received a kingdom which cannot be removed, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. If your relationship with God is casual, you should go memorize those verses. Intimate, yes. Casual, no. Intimate, yes. Marked by love and trust, yes. But our God is a holy God. His love for us is committed to burning away everything ugly and evil in us. So we approach him with reverent joy. First Peter 2.17 Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Don't fear the emperor. Fear God. Respect people, but fear only God. Revelation 14.6-7 talks about an angel proclaiming an eternal gospel, which is that Jesus is about to come overthrow evil forever. That's the day we're looking forward to. Doesn't that sound great? And the angel's gospel begins in verse 7 with these words. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Fear God. Now, this week, as I've been thinking about what do these midwives have to do with us? But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. I kept thinking about Corey Ten Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who spent a long, terrible time in a concentration camp, watched her family members die because she courageously resisted the Nazis to protect the lives of Jews in the midst of World War II. And because Corey feared God... She didn't obey Hitler, but she protected vulnerable lives and she was willing to suffer for it. And she suffered with grace. Bonhoeffer, likewise, because he feared God, didn't listen to Hitler and he paid with his life. He was executed by the Nazis a few years before that. Bonhoeffer gave a sermon to some Christians who were preparing for the ministry in November 4th, 1935, the sermon was called Learning to Die. How would you feel if I started a uh, sermon series called Learning to Die? See, for Bonhoeffer and his friends, this was not like someday when you're really old. This was, we need to die daily to follow Christ, and the Nazis are probably going to kill us soon. So as followers of Jesus, how do we think about that? And he talked about the text I just quoted from Revelation 14. Here's an eternal gospel. Fear God, because he's about to draw an end to all evil in the world. And Bonhoeffer said this. This is the first commandment, the entire gospel. 
Fear God. Everybody say, fear God. He continues, fear God instead of the many things which you fear. Did you hear that today, friends? Right now, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what you're fearing besides God. Because the way to crush that fear is to trust and love and fear God alone. Bonhoeffer continues, do not fear the coming day. Do not fear other people. Do not fear power and might, even if they are able to deprive you of property and life. Do not fear the great ones of the world. Do not even fear ourselves. All this fear will be the death of you. Somebody here is afraid of yourself. You're afraid of your own failure. And Bonhoeffer says, if you fear God and trust Jesus, it's time to crush that fear. Some of you are afraid of other people's opinions. You're afraid of letting other people down. Bonhoeffer is saying, if you fear God, you can be free of that fear. He continues in the text, you are free from all this fear. It isn't there for you, but fear God and God alone, for God has power over the powers of this world. The whole world must fear God. God has power to give us life or to destroy us. Everything else is a game. Only God is in earnest, entirely in earnest. Fear God's earnestness and give God the glory. God demands it as the creator of the world. As our creator, God demands it as the reconciler who made peace between God and humankind in Christ. God demands it as the savior who will liberate us in the end from all sin and burden. Elsewhere, Bonhoeffer said this very simply. Those who are still afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. That's the simple point. What does this have to do with us today? Friends, these midwives had no Bible. Think about this for a second. They had no Bible. Exodus hadn't been written yet. We're reading Exodus chapter 1. Genesis also had not been written yet. What they had probably was some oral stories passed down that said God created everything And he made some promises to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he told us to walk in righteousness and justice. And he promised that he would bring us to a good land. That's probably all they had. But that was enough for them to say, there is a power that is stronger than Pharaoh. There is a power above every human power. And we're going to trust in that God because he has a mercy which can save us from the ruthlessness of Pharaoh. And because we love this God, we want to stick close to him. That's going to make us hate evil. And that's going to make us courageous in the face of injustice to defend the integrity and the dignity of human life. Now, we've got a lot more reasons. We've got a whole Bible. And God came down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. We know about God's hatred of evil because he defeated it on the cross. And we know about God's mercy and love for us because he died on the cross for our sins and then rose again from the grave and promised to return to make the whole world new. We have more reasons to know that God is good and holy and pure, which means we have reason to be courageous and joyful in the face of every injustice. If the midwives let the babies live at the risk of their own lives, then friends, we can imitate their faith by courageously, joyfully defending the dignity of human beings. That's why we stand against abortion. That's why we stand against xenophobia. That's why we stand with every vulnerable people group in our community. The poor, the disabled. Immigrants and refugees who are easily exploited by a political system, much like the situation in Egypt. That's why we stand with single moms. That's why we stand with fatherless kids. That's why if any of those categories describes you, which basically those categories pretty much touched on most of us in here already. Right? Anybody aware that we are the vulnerable ones a lot of times? We're we're weak and we're struggling. That's why the Bible says God stands with you and we as a church say we're standing together with you. And that's why we're willing to courageously sacrifice and risk in our community because those who fear God love the vulnerable. 
That's what Jesus did for us. And that's how we live as disciples of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, I thank you for these midwives. I thank you for these women who feared God and so they didn't fear Pharaoh. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving in our hearts now to put in us an even greater measure of faith and the fear of God. As we go to the Lord's table now, would you remind us just how holy and pure and gracious and just and good you are? Lord, if there's anybody here who is just living in sin, I pray that even a a fear of punishment would lead them in this moment to the cross in repentance. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that there would be such a knowledge of your goodness that we would want to please you and we would want to enjoy intimate fellowship with you more than anything and that that would cause us to hate evil. Lord, that our questions would mature, that we would move beyond, can I get away with, is it okay if I, to better questions, would it honor Jesus if... Would I grow deeper in my intimate relationship with Jesus if? Let those be the questions in our lives. Bless and refresh and encourage not only the saints in this room, but all over our city and our nation and the world. People like the midwives who fear you and who are protecting vulnerable human life in the face of grave injustice. Protect and strengthen your saints, we pray. Guys, as we get ready to go to the Lord's Supper, I just want to take about a minute right now and just encourage you right now to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you, what is it, Lord, that I fear more than I fear you? So that you can bring that to Jesus in this moment. Say, God, I don't want to fear anything but you. Just ask the Lord now. Lord, as we go to the Lord's table, bless the bread, bless the cup, bless our hearts to receive the gospel, that we would fear no evil, but we would trust and love and fear you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.